that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is the word of our God. Let that guide us, fuel us to worship him with joy, with reverence, with honor, with conviction as we come before him because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, it is by your own kind, gracious, providential initiative that you've gathered your people today to sing your praise, to read your word, to hear your word, to hear the word preached and proclaimed um, with zeal and boldness, with humility and grace. Lord, in this day, we ask for your help, for by your grace, be it apart from your grace, we can do nothing to please you. And we only have safe access to you, Father, because of your Son, who came in the form of a baby, who came in our flesh, veiled in flesh, though fully God, full deity, to bring us to you, that you um, would, um, that we would um, give proper worship to you, uh, that is, do your name. So help us to do that, Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let us stand as we begin singing with this Charles Wesley standard that is a Typically Christmas or Advent hymn, but also in some ways a second Advent hymn. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. Let's sing. Thank you. 
a testimony of how the Lord has saved us and delivered us. The grace of God has reached for me and pulled me from the raging sea. And I am saved on the solid ground. The Lord is my Oh uh-huh. 
so privileged to be in your presence and to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, help us continue in that attitude of worship, that spirit of worship, that spirit of praise and joyfulness and uh, uh, cheerfulness as we give, because giving, Lord, is obviously a way to worship you and honor you as well. And we just uh, ask that we do this as well as we would sing a great praise song that we would give in such a way that would honor you and we would live a life in such a way that would honor you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we continue in this time of worship, let's join together and uh, as we sing this Fanny Crosby standard, All the Way My Savior Leads Me. All the way my Savior leads me. Oh, 
As we continue in our singing, I would like to take time to do a congregational reading of this passage from the middle of Hebrews 11, a little bit before where Joel will be preaching uh, tonight. So let's join together as we read Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Amen. So let that passage wash over you as we sing this new, uh, new congregational hymn, modern hymn, uh, Christ is Mine Forevermore, uh, has some of these themes of just what we just read as well as what uh, Joel will be preaching on. So listen to this first verse or two if you need to, and feel free to join in later. days that God has numbered, I was made to walk with Him, yet I look for earthly treasure and forsake the King of Kings. But
found its treasure. Christ is mine forevermore. Christ is mine forevermore. Oh, Christ is mine
Well, amen. We, uh, I think we just had our sermon and song. Didn't we? Christ is our hope in life and death. What an honor it is to stand here this morning to worship with friends and family and many people that my bride and I have not seen in many, many years. It's been nearly five years uh, since the Lord has uh, opened up the door to pastoral ministry. Uh, we spent a couple of years in Conway, a couple of years now in Salem, and in God's kind providence. Um, we're here this day, and uh, what a blessing to be able to worship with each one of you all, friends, family, church family. Uh, this, is a, this is the day the Lord has made. We know we will rejoice as we've done and be glad in it. Lindsay and I will forever appreciate this church. We love this church. We miss this church more than you all could imagine. I cannot name names because I will forget some, and uh, it will keep me up at night because of the impact you all have made in my life, the life of my wife. But I do want to take the time to just say thank you to Philip, David, don't see David, you're somewhere. There's David and Dad. Thank you all for your role in uh, raising up young men to ministry, preaching the word through song, through the word, and by going to the nations. Thank you, thank you, thank you. God is good. And ultimately, this day is all about God. That's why we're here, amen? This is the Lord's day. We've come to worship the Lord. I prayed for a couple of months over where we would look in our time studying the word of God and I kept on coming back to Hebrews, not chapter 2, <laughs> chapter 11. I know y'all are working through Hebrews verse by verse and uh, just kept on coming back to this uh, chapter, this text in the Word of God. My church, First Baptist Salem, um, we completed Hebrews back in November. And so this was fresh um, on my brain, fresh, and I just prayed that this would be a text that would be helpful for us this day as we end one year and begin another. My prayer is twofold. One, I pray that this whets your appetite for what is to come in your study of Hebrews. Hebrews is a rich and dense and theological and doxological book, and you all will not get here for two more years. And so <laughs> my prayer is that this whets your appetite for what is to come. This is a wonderful, glorious book, as you all already know. And I'm so excited for you all as you continue working through this book. My second prayer is this, that this would be a launching pad for you as you end one year and begin another year. Because as we know, when one year ends and a new one begins, we have a renewed sense of hope, a renewed optimism. We know that at a new year, budgets reset, calendars are brand new, and there's optimism. We enter a new year with, with expectancy, with optimism, with positivity. And many people try to capitalize on that sense of optimism by doing what? A New Year's resolution. How many of y'all have ever done a New Year's resolution? How many of y'all have ever failed? At a All right, more have failed than have started. That's interesting. Now, I'm a glass half full type of person. But let's throw a little bit of cold water on that renewed sense of optimism in that fire. Do you know how long the average New Year's resolution lasts? 30 days. 30 days. Four weeks. 
Meaning this, you start out with optimism, with boldness, with confidence, and within just a couple of weeks, by the time February rolls around, you have failed. You went back to just how you were when you started. We wonder why. Why do things work that way in this world? And it's simply this, because we live in a broken world where broken people break their promises. A world that is faithless more often than it is faithful. And that's not only true of people. It's also true of our whole world in general. Think about what you were doing at 1029 this morning. You're checking your, your watches. Right before service started, you were here. I, I trust many of y'all were, were gathering. You were visiting. You were talking with one another. But eventually you did what you sat down. Why did you sit down where you sat? Some of y'all, I know the answer. You're saying, that was my pew since 2002. <laughs> Thinking, That's why I sat where I sat. Others of you all, you, you were talking, you were visiting with other people, and then at 1029, you, you saw the, the praise team come forward, and you figured, well, I'm going to be the only one standing. I better sit too. But really, why did you sit down? You sat down because you placed your faith in the pew to hold you up. That's why you sat down. You believed, whether subconsciously or consciously, that that pew would hold you up, and you would not fall too the floor. And as far as I can tell, everyone made a safe observation, a safe guess when they sat down, as I don't think anyone fell. But you know what happens to pews sometimes? They break. Chairs break. Sometimes we get into our car and it's a normal day and we start to drive. And what happens to even the most reliable of cars and trucks, regardless of what their commercials tell you? They break down. Things are not as reliable as they claim to be. This is our broken, fallen, messed up world where things break down. Things are faithless more often than they are faithful. And because this is the world in which we live, some people carry that over to God. And they'll say something along these lines. They'll say, you know what? I was told that if I believe in God, if I follow God, if I have faith in God, then everything will be better but now I'm suffering. But now tragedy has afflicted my life. Adversity has knocked. And there's a growing number of people in our world, especially our area, who say it is never God's will for God's people to suffer. Enter the word of God. What we desperately need is the word of God to recalibrate and straighten our brains. To remind us what it means whenever we say God is faithful, not faithless. What does that mean? And how the God of the Bible promises something so much better than happiness, healthiness, and wealthiness. The God of the Bible promises something even greater. As we'll look at in Hebrews 11, verses 32 through 40, let's see what our faithful God does and what those with faith in this God do. This is God's word. What more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon. Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength and weakness, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Other people were tortured, not accepting release, so that they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they died by the sword. 
They wandered about in sheepskins, in goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. But look at verse 39, church. All these were approved through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised. Since God had prepared something better for us so that they would not be made perfect without us. What a passage. That concludes an incredible chapter. We see that God can and God does miraculously deliver his people. But God does not always do this. Some say that if you just have enough faith in God, then God will do what you want, when you want, how you want. But as we look in God's word, we see a different story. When suffering comes knocking on your door, what will you do? I pray as we look at God's word, you will do two things. One, you will look back with confidence so that you look forward in faith at a God who can be nothing other than faithful. Let's pray. God, you are good. Lord, you are worthy of all glory and all honor forever and ever. God, we thank you for your word. God, I pray this morning you would speak through me in this time, that you would open eyes and open hearts to respond in faith to your word, which we know never returns to you void. God, I pray that this morning we would leave you changed, that we would leave you challenged, that we would leave you convicted to be the people that you would have us be for your glory and for our ultimate eternal good. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people say, amen. amen. First, in our text, we see this outline, point one, that biblical faith can lead one to escape temporary suffering. Does anyone else love the word of God? This is a time when it's appropriate to. Does anyone else love the word? We love the word of God, amen? We do. Have you ever been reading in your copy of God's word and you come across something that you just have to, to let marinate a little bit? And as you let it marinate, you just kind of chuckle to yourself. Have you ever been there in, in God's word? Look at verse 32. The preacher of Hebrews says this, time is too short. Now that's rich. That's rich. Here's why it's rich. Because we know that Hebrews is not a, a normal letter, right? Hebrew is, it's not historical narrative. Hebrews is a sermon. What's the preacher of Hebrews saying? Time is too short. He's been preaching for 11 chapters. This is when the pastor's at the 40-minute mark of the sermon. And the chiefs play at 12 o'clock, and it's 11.45. And an executive decision has to be made in the moment. Either we're going to land this plane, or we're going to keep on going, and the tomatoes are about to be thrown. Because time is just too short. Every expository preacher could say that every single Sunday. There is so much meat and potatoes in the word of God, but time and attention spans are just too short. What the preacher of Hebrews is talking about, as he says this at the end of this chapter, is examples in the Old Testament of people who have faith in God. They trust in God, and they do things for the glory of God, and they are delivered by the power of God. He brings up, these stories, these people, but he doesn't elaborate much in this final section because he says, to do so would take too much time. Time is just too short. So what are we going to do this morning? Briefly, 
we're going to look at how God uses these people for God's glory. The first example we see in verse 32 is that of Gideon. Bible scholars, where does the story of Gideon appear? The book of Judges, chapter 6, God selects Gideon to be the leader of his army against the Midianites and the Amalekites in chapter 7. And we see this selection process take place, and this has always fascinated myself. I trust it has you as well as you have read in the word of God. Now, Ozark has grown dramatically in the 18 years that my family's been here. From 2005 to 2023, I googled it this week because Google knows everything, or so they say. And the population of Ozark is just shy of 22,000 people. Ozark has grown a lot in 18 years. Uh, Imagine there's Ozark, a little bit bigger, against an army of 135,000. Now, I know you're thinking, I've got 10 guns in my safe. I've got this, I've got, I can take on a couple of these people that don't know what they're doing when it comes to fighting. I'm good. 32,000 Israelites, 135,000 Midianites and Amalekites outnumbered four to one. Maybe you're thinking, well, it's not great odds, but I've seen worse odds. So what does God do? Judges 7 verse 2, the Bible tells us this. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many troops for me to hand the Midianites over to them. Or else Israel might elevate themselves over me and say, I saved myself. Look at that. You have too many. Not too few, too many. In what world does having 32,000 against 135,000 that's being outnumbered by 100,000 people, in what world does that mean you have too many? Get this. God's world. Because of what follows. God says, you have too many for me to hand them over or else Israel might say, I saved myself. Church, how often is that us? Where we dare to steal the glory that belongs to God and say, look at me. Look at my laurels. Look at my accomplishments. Look at my trophies. Look at what I've done, which the Bible says are filthy rags. How dare we? So what does God do? He whittles down the force. 32 becomes 10. And maybe you're thinking, well, I've got 15 guns in my safe. I'm okay. You're at number 13 to 1. God says, no, it's still too many. Becomes 300. And then God says, that's enough. In what world is 300 enough? Again, God's world. And sure enough, in God's world, 300 faithful troops defeat 135,000. How? Not by their own strength and ingenuity and power and brilliance. It's because of God's power. God fought the battle for them. God delivered them from their foes. We could say they escaped temporary suffering, death, by placing their faith in God and God delivered them. So what's the point of including Gideon in our text in Hebrews eleven thirty-two? Is the preacher of Hebrews making this this theological point to say, you know what, if you're facing a problem, whittle down your power by 99% and then I will always come through. That's not the point. What about Samson? He shows up later. Is the inclusion of Samson to say this, never cut your hair, men. Because when Samson had long hair, he was strong. When he had shorter, he was weak. And some of y'all got no hair. I don't know what that means for you. Is that the the point of including Samson in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11? It's not. What's the point? These people all have flaws. They were not perfect, and many times they lacked faith. Think of David, the king. So we can't moralize them. To borrow an old Philippism, God uses crooked sticks to hit straight shots. And every crooked stick says, 
Amen. Right? Faith in God leads the people of God to trust in God and to progress to be more like God, not to suddenly become perfect. And when the people of God trust in the power of God, look at what can happen in this text in verse 32 through 35. Ten things. Conquered kingdoms. Administer justice. Obtain promises. Shut the mouths of lions. Quench the raging of fire. Escape the edge of the sword. Gain strength and weakness. Become mighty in battle. Put foreign armies to flight. Receive their dead back to life. Ten things. How do they happen? Was it because these people are so powerful that they could speak things into existence like many in our world propagate? This means yes, and I know, I know y'all know that. This means no. That's not why these things happen. The reason why they happen is because these people are empowered by the Holy Spirit of the living God, and we know God's strength is made strong in human weakness, as 2 Corinthians 12 says. Sometimes as the people of God trust in the will of God and walk according to the power of God, God delivers his people supernaturally. The God of the Bible preserves his servants in fiery furnaces. The God of the Bible shuts the mouths of fierce lions. The God of the Bible calms frightening storms. He raises those who have fallen asleep back to life. That is the power of God in helping the people of God escape suffering that is temporary in this life because God can do what he wants, how he wants, when he wants, even when it doesn't make sense because God is God. And God is still in the business of helping people escape from suffering as Jesus is still in the business of saving sinful, straying, selfish sheep from eternal separation from God in a literal place called hell. He is still in the business of saving people from temporary suffering. Is anyone else thankful for that biblical truth today? The God of the Bible still is in the business of the miraculous. Here's how we know this, Ephesians 2. You were dead. Not kind of dead. Not on life support. You were, you were stone cold dead six feet under. You were walking in darkness, a child under wrath, but God. Aren't you thankful for the resurrection power of Jesus Christ in saving dead sinners? I hope that's your story. And at this point, everything sounds good, doesn't it? Oh, we love Hebrews eleven thirty two through 35. This is great. And this is where pastors and churches stop. They'll stop at verse 35. The breakthrough, the victory, the faith, and so far everything's good. Go back to Hebrews 11, the beginning of it. Verse 4, yeah, Abel died, but everybody else is pretty good. Right? Think about this. Enoch escapes death. Noah survives the flood. Abraham is blessed by God. Moses is used to part the Red Sea and lead the people. Joshua leads the people into the promised land. And here in our text so far this morning in 32 through 35, everything's great. Positive things happen. And there is a temptation to think that if I just have enough faith, good things in my view will happen to me. And people get this a little bit crosswired from Hebrews 11.6. Now without faith, it is impossible to please God. Since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So some say, well, if I just have faith, then God will reward me how I want. If I have faith, if I do things perfectly, then God will do what I want, how I want. I'll have the breakthrough, I'll have the victory, I'll have this, I'll have that. I will escape suffering if I just have faith. Now, that might sound outrageous at church. But in the good days of our life, how quickly do we buy it? 
On the good days, it sounds good. On the good days, we might even be tempted to believe it. But this is why we need the full counsel of the word of God. Amen? Because when your nightmare becomes your reality, a cute, comfy, cozy, name it, claim it, Jesus will not do you a lick of good. Praise God for the rest of this passage as it recalibrates our brains in times of suffering. So yes, first, biblical faith can lead one to escape temporary suffering. But second, biblical faith can lead one to endure temporary suffering. Look at verse 35, how things change so quickly. We see that people are escaping suffering. They're being blessed by God. They're used by God. And then in verse 35, we see a change. Other people were tortured. It's as if we've had these examples so far and we've been building up a concrete dam. Peace, peace, slab, slab. This, this wall to say, if I have faith, good things will happen. And then 35 comes and there's a little crack in that dam. And then we keep on reading 36 and 37 and 38 and then that dam comes crashing down. And suddenly we have to grapple with a question. Why do people suffer? Because I don't know about you, but I've heard from a growing number of people that it is never God's will for people to suffer. Have you heard someone say that? I've heard many people say in those terms or in different terms, it is never God's will for people to suffer. It is as though we equate judgment with the, the, the wrath of God where we say suffering is God's disapproval in my life. I don't deserve to suffer. I've done a lot of good things. People ask it like this. Why do bad things happen to good people? We've all heard that. That's America's second gospel. If you're a good person, you shouldn't have bad things happen. The first American gospel is this, do not judge. Uh, we, we all know that one. The second one is if you do good, you should get good back. Well, let's be clear, that only happened one time. Where someone good got something bad, and that was the cross. As the Lamb of God bore the sins of his people. That's the only time something bad has happened to someone good. Everybody else, we deserve it. Well, that doesn't make me feel good. It's Bible. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. But what did God do? Through his wrath on his son. We need biblical correction, brothers and sisters. We have to understand this, that in Christ, as we sang about, your pain has a purpose. It is not wasted. It's not random. It is not accidental. It is purposeful. When we suffer, what does the word of God tell us to do? It never says to speak it away. James 1. Consider it a great joy, brothers and sisters. Whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Rejoice when you suffer. In what world do we do that? In God's world. Because our pain is not wasted. John 16, Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I've conquered the world. The, world for, the word for suffering there sometimes is translated tribulation. Other times trouble, other times trials. This is a promise from the king of kings. In this world, we will suffer. In this world, things will not go our way, but we can still have peace in Christ. Romans 8. The spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. 
And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, verse 17, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Verse 18, if you've ever suffered, this is your go-to verse. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Jesus never promised you an easy life. He never promised you that. John 16, he did promise a difficult one, a life of suffering, a life of trial, a life literally of tribulation. Luke 9, 23, Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. How often? Daily and follow me. This is not easy. Consider the the shift in verse 35. Ask the average churchgoer, Will you follow Jesus if it means you become popular and platformed and mighty and well-known and all of these things will be given unto you? Will you follow Jesus if good things happen according to your version of good? Everyone says, yes, of course I'll follow Jesus. Now look at 35 down. What about tortured, mocked, imprisoned, stoned, killed by the sword, betrayed, mistreated? Many will rebuke those. I didn't sign up for that. Yes, you did. The reason why is this. Well, that's not a popular message. That message won't sell out Great Southern Bank Arena, but the opposite one will. A message that promises your best life now sounds good to the ears of goats because it tickles our ears. And deep down, There's a part of all of us that love a message that promises my version of my best. But your version of your best apart from Jesus is not in your best interest. Today, tomorrow, or for all eternity, friend. Why do we trust in the Lord during times of great suffering? Not because it's easy, it's hard. But it's because this is what our faithful God demands us to do. So it might help to define what is faith. This hall of faith, what is faith? In our world, people define faith like this. I woke up on the right side of the bed. I believe I'm going to have a good day. I'm going to have a better day today than I did yesterday. You're playing a basketball game and your your team is losing by one point. Your best player gets fouled shooting a three. Not just two free throws, three free throws. You have faith. Your best player, not only is he going to make one, he's going to make two, he's going to make, you're going to win the game. You have faith in that player. Here's the problem. People miss free throws. Here's the problem as we look around our world. We can have the the most faith we can conjure up in ourselves and things will still not go our way. Earthly faith is not the same as biblical faith. Consider what biblical faith is as we see in the book of Hebrews. Biblical faith we could say is this. Confidence in the promises of God that leads ordinary people to action and results in various earthly outcomes, but always results in the applause of our Father in heaven. Every single time. Consider this. Biblical faith is not confidence in self. It is not confidence in another sinner. Biblical faith is confidence in the promise of a faithful, sovereign God. Simple as that. As we keep going through that, biblical faith leads the people of God to act. What does James 2 say? Faith without action, without works is what? Dead, useless. It does no one good. 
Faith leads to action, and faith results in lots of different outcomes. Read Hebrews 11. Abel died because he had faith. And look at what 39 says. He was approved through faith. You can't say he lacked faith and he died. He died because of his faith. It's going to result in various earthly outcomes. But get this, if you have faith in God, you will hear six words that change everything. Well done, good and faithful servant. Biblical faith always results in the applause of our Father in heaven. This is grounded in the inspired and errant, authoritative, sufficient word of the living God. My question for you is this. Is my life, is your life marked by biblical faith? Not a wishy-washy earthly faith that fluctuates based on how I feel. Is it marked by faith in the God who does not change? If so, look at what it could lead to. Seven things. You could be tortured. You could be mocked. You could be scourged. Think of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 20, verse 2, we see this reality. Pashur had the great prophet Jeremiah beaten and put him in the stocks of the upper Benjamin gate in the Lord's temple for being faithful to teach what God wanted him to teach. It got him put in the stocks. Third, it could get you stoned. Think about my favorite deacon, Deacon Stephen. Book of Acts, right? Acts 7, 59. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Faith in Jesus could lead you to being sawed in two. That doesn't sound particularly good, but that's the fate that Isaiah, according to church tradition, was met with. The prophet Isaiah Faithful to the word of God, sought into. Fifth, killed by the sword. Many people met this fate. We see this in Acts 12. About that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church, and he executed James, John's brother, with the sword. Sixth, being destitute. Seventh, being mistreated. We are so quick to sign up for the first 10. 32 through 35. Give me those things. Give me the good, but these seven, no one's willing to sign up for those things. So here's the question. Why did these people willingly submit and have faith in Jesus when it was met with bad, we would say, results? Look at verse 35. Was their focus in this life? What's the last word of verse 35? Resurrection. Where was their brain focused? Their brain was focused on eternity to come. They could echo what Paul shares in Philippians 1. To live is Christ, to die is gain. There's there's an understanding in verse 35. Other people were tortured, not accepting release. It would have been easy to be released in this context. All you had to do was deny Jesus. All you have to do is, is bow to another God, Daniel 3. And you won't be thrown into the flames. Just bend the knee. And what's he saying? They would not do this so they would gain a better resurrection. Understand this, friend. Jesus is your hope in life and death. And Jesus Christ drops none of his blood-bought brothers and sisters. Heartache, pain, torture, suffering do not get the last word. He holds us fast in the mountain high in the valley low, as well as we follow him. We invest in the world to come, even facing suffering and death. Romans 8 shares with us the consistent Christian proclamation. You all know this. Romans 8, 37 through 39. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am persuaded that neither death nor life, 
angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Aren't you thankful for that truth? Get this. If death can't separate you from Jesus, why are we so afraid suffering will? If death can't, suffering cannot. Either he is still present. Jesus is the good shepherd of Psalm 23. You believe that, don't you? The good shepherd who walks with his sheep through the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus is the good shepherd of John 10. The good shepherd who gives his life for his sheep. In fact, if death does claim a believer, all death does is bring you to Jesus. Aren't you thankful for the blood of Jesus applied to your account? I pray that you are. Some of y'all I don't know about. I pray that that's your hope. What do we do between this day and that day, though? Our day today and the day that Christ calls us home, 1 Peter 4, 19. So then let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. Suffer according to God's will. Everyone loves Romans 8. Nothing separates me from Jesus. Okay. Jesus' will for your life will include suffering. Separation. What do we do with that? Here's what we do. 2 Corinthians 12. Like Paul, we understand this reality. God's power is made perfect in weakness. When I am weak, then I am strong. Contrary to what some might say, obtaining a certain level of faith does not mean that you skate past suffering and you gain a get-out-of-suffering-free card like a monopoly. In fact, walking by faith often means that you walk straight into the flames. You will not always escape them, but by his power, you will endure them. You will. I'm reminded of a pastor in Tennessee named Eric Reed. Eric and his family had a tragedy a couple of years ago as They had a son, Caleb, born with one good kidney and and one bad kidney. They went in to do a surgery when Caleb was a little boy, and the surgeon removed the wrong one. He removed the good kidney, not the bad one. This set Caleb and the whole Reed family on a, a long path marked by suffering and affliction and hardship. And they wrestled with the Lord during these years, as you can only imagine. Eric outlines some of this in a book he wrote called Uncommon Trust. And he shares that miraculously during these years, his faith and confidence in Jesus increased. It didn't decrease, it increased. Like in the book of Daniel, we know that God is over our trials. Now, now you can interpret those things however you want to. God decrees it, God allows it. You cannot avoid the fact that God wills things to happen that do not feel good. As we go through them, We know that God has the power to rescue us, Daniel 3, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what do they say? We know he can. We believe he will. What's the third part? Even if he doesn't, we will not bow. He is still God. That's Job 1, isn't it? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord Even if he chooses not to remove the trial, he does so promising his presence in the furnace and promising his people he has our best interest at heart. Even if it doesn't feel good church, 
God is faithful. In fact, it is impossible for God to be anything other than faithful because faithful is his nature. He cannot be anything other than faithful. He is good. He is God. He is eternally faithful. He won't always deliver his children from temporary obstacles, but he will never forsake us during temporary obstacles either. Once you find peace in the providence of God, you become invincible. Tim Keller once put it like this, all death can do is make my life better. Oh, friend, once you get there, you're untouchable. You're invincible as all that suffering can do is make you better because he will not drop his followers. He's our hope in life, but by the grace of God, as we say that he is our hope in death as well. As we see at the conclusion of this text, our faithful God provides eternal security. Not only security for the 70 years in this life, but security for all eternity as he brings us to the golden shore. Think about the thing that you need most this year. It's a list. 600 people, 600 different things maybe. Maybe you're thinking, I need less suffering. I'm going through a really hard time. I need a reprieve. I need less suffering. Maybe you're thinking, I'm having a difficult situation at work. I need something to work out. I need a promotion. I need this. I need that. Some of y'all are thinking, I need the Chiefs to just win a game. Not the Super Bowl. Just a single game would do. What do we ultimately need, church? We know this from singing it. Pardon from sin. A peace that endures It's not a suffering-free year. It's God's presence in our suffering as he cleanses us from our ungodliness. Aren't you thankful? This is the God of Scripture. We all face enemies in this life. We all face problems, sickness, brokenness, suffering, abandonment, betrayal. Some of you are possibly facing problems like cancer, problems like loss. There's been so much loss in recent days, weeks months, years. Maybe that's your reality as you end 2023 is that of loss. Maybe that's where you're at today, getting ready to enter a new year and it just feels different. Trials can trip us up real quick if we are not grounded in the word of God. And especially if we're kind of wavering as we're trying to walk according to his will by faith. As you enter a new year, you will face adversity. Maybe you're here thinking everything's great. Life is great. Well, suffering will come knocking. And providentially, God will help you avoid much of the suffering you don't even know you were about to go through. As God will shut doors before you got to them. And we all say thank you, Jesus, for those times. But there will be other times where you will have to endure suffering. What we have to do in those moments is remember that God is faithful to his promises to save his people from the penalty, the power, and one day the presence of sin. One of the problems that people have is they make promises that Jesus never made. Well, just have more faith and this will happen. Where in the Bible does it say that? Don't make promises that Jesus never made. It will hurt people because bad theology hurts people. Don't do it. Look to the word of God and see all of the enemies in life that we face. They are from the root of sin. We live in a broken, sinful, depraved, messed up world. The problem as we go back to Genesis is sin. It's the fall. 
And we know that sin leads to death, as Romans 5 says. This is our greatest foe. Let me give you the greatest news of all in 1 Corinthians 15. Are you ready? Are you ready for some good news? Let's read this glorious text, 54. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. Verse 57. Thanks be to whom? God, who gives us what? Victory through whom? Our Lord Jesus Christ. For the believer, we no longer have to wonder what our eternal outlook looks like. You know what the theme of Revelation is in two words? It's not seven years. It's not 144,000 people. Two words, it's Jesus wins. And if you are in Christ, guess what? Three words, you win too. Oh, that's our hope. That's our blessed assurance. The victory is granted to all who are saved by grace through faith in Christ. But as we walk in this life, we will have trouble. And in moments of trouble, we will have an internal dialogue. We will have external noise who will tell us to focus on the temporary, not the eternal. Consider those of Hebrews 11. They were approved through their faith, but they didn't receive the promises. They did not all receive physical and emotional deliverance, but you know what they did all experience? Deliverance from the punishment of sin that they all deserved. And y'all, that's a billion times better than any psychosomatic healing you can conjure up. Pardon for sin. Peace that endures for all eternity. But get this, these people lived on this side of the cross. They looked by faith, but you and I live on this side. We can look back with confidence and know God did what he said he would do. We look back with confidence. We look forward with faith. Not an earthly optimism or a fuzzy feeling, but a biblical confidence grounded in the word of God. Faith is not based on fleeting feelings. It is based on fact. Piper put it like this years ago. My feelings are not God. God is God. My feelings do not define truth. God's word defines truth. My feelings are echoes and responses to what my mind has perceived. And sometimes my feelings are out of sync with the truth. When that happens, and it happens every day, I try not to bend the truth to justify my feelings, but rather I plead with God, purify my perceptions of your truth, transform my feelings so that they are in sync with the truth. What is Jesus' high priestly prayer? John 17, sanctify them with what? Truth. What is truth? Your word is truth. So in a world where subjectivity dominates the airlines, we say no, truth is not subjective. Truth is objective. It is in a person. His name is Jesus. Apart from him, we have nothing. So as we enter a new year, this must be our prayer that we would dive into the word of God and the word of God would change us. And that the word of God would align our heart that is broken and deceitful and wicked with the word of God. And that God would give us a clean, new, purified heart. And as we walk in a new year, we will face trials. And when suffering comes knocking, there are some who will go the other way. 1 John 2, 19 tells us that they went out from us because they were not of us. But as you'll study in Hebrews... Those who have faith in God do what? Persevere. Endure. 
What's the next chapter say? Hebrews 12, keep your eyes on Jesus, the champion of your faith. Run the race before you. Eyes up. Not down. Eyes out. Not in. Look to Jesus. As Romans 8, 28 reminds us, God works all things for his glory and your good. Aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful for the truth that Jesus holds us fast and not the other way around? If I was saved because of my grip on Jesus, I would have fallen off the first second. And you would have too. Maybe you think, I got gorilla glue grip. It don't matter. You are a sinner. Sin separates us from him. He holds us fast. He is faithful to his promise. Ask yourself this question. Do I know this faithful God? Have I repented of my sin? Have I placed my faith and trust in Jesus? Have I been washed by his blood? If your answer is no, I just want you to know the gravity of your situation. The gravity is this. Paul Washer shares this powerful illustration with two hands. God's got two hands that are up right now. With one hand, he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Come home and be saved. With one hand, he says, come home. With the other hand, he is holding back his wrath against sin. But you know what's going to happen biblically one day? Both hands drop. As God will pour out his wrath against sin, and people don't want to talk about this, but if he pours out his wrath against sin, what does that mean also? Sinners. And we will be separated from God. If you are here, friend, understand the severity of your sin. You can go back to Hebrews 10 and you'll get there at some point in your study of Hebrews. This is what Hebrews 10.31 says. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God apart from Jesus. He's your only hope. Hebrews 4, he's your mediator. And if you don't know this Jesus, friend, you do not have hope. You don't have life. Friend, come to Jesus. Chances are many of you here have done this. What is demanded of you in light of this text? It's simply this. Trust in God. Not just with words, but with action. A life of obedience. That's the call of Hebrews. To persevere, to endure, to run the race of faith with your eyes on Jesus. Why did the preacher of Hebrews include these people 2,000 years ago? Because this congregation was suffering, Hebrews 12, 4. What's our reminder as we go through suffering in our life? Other people have suffered too. We're not the first, we're not the last. God has been faithful, God will be faithful still. Remember that God is good. Remember that our call is to do two words, to trust and obey. There's a song that goes away, doesn't it? Trust and obey, for there's no other way. Come on. To be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Faith focuses forward. We look back with confidence. We look forward in faith, knowing that there's a faithful God at the finish line waiting to say six words. Well done, good, and faithful servant. Live in such a way to hear those six words. Let's pray. God, you are good. Lord, we love you. God, I'm thankful for your word. 
God, I'm thankful for this church. I'm thankful for these people. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who does not have faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior, that, Lord, today they would understand that they're facing a serious problem. The problem of their sin in the eyes of a holy God is eternal separation. That, God, those who are saved would look at their life, look at their circumstances, look at their suffering, and they would realize that just because bad things do happen, that just because suffering and adversity do strike, that they would press forward in faith through the fire, knowing that through your power and your presence, Lord, we can endure, knowing that you have our best interest at heart, Father, knowing that you hold us fast, knowing that you have a perfect plan that is higher than our ways and greater than our ways. Lord, help us to trust in you. And Lord, whenever suffering does strike, help us to obey. 1 Peter 4, 19, help us to do what is good. Help us to trust in you. God, you are good. You are faithful. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your son. We thank you for the salvation that he offers. God, I pray that each person this day has faith in Jesus. Lord, thank you for what you've done for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet as we sing uh, the, the entirety of this wonderful hymn, He Will Hold Me Fast. Uh, I encourage you, following Joel's words, if, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, come, come forward. Pastor Philip, one of the elders here, would love to talk with you about that. So let's, let's sing this beautiful hymn of assurance. <clears throat>
justice has been satisfied, he will hold me fast. Raised with him to end his life, he will hold me fast. Till our faith is turned aside, when he comes at last. next year. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but what a blessing to see what faith does achieve in uh, good-for-nothing sinners. I mean, if God can use Balaam's donkey, right? He can use us, right? And then what faith does endure. We, we know. We live in that reality. Uh, but thank God for the promise for faith, for perfection, for what the Word of God teaches us uh, special thanks to Nathan. Uh, what a blessing he is. Uh, I think leading music is in safe hands with guys like this one, all right? And mentors, mentor E, like David. And thank the Lord for the songs that were chosen, meshing with the theme of the text and putting that together. And how about the preaching of the word? You think it's in safe hands? <laughs> Amen. Yeah. It's, this guy is 27 years old. Just think about that, 27. And here's what I would remind you of. He preached what the Bible said. He did it with passion. He believes what he's preaching. How dare we ever stand in the pulpit and not believe the Bible and preach it with passion, clarity. Man, that's good stuff. It was all I could do to sit quietly. I, I didn't want to cause a scene. Man, Natalie said, stop shaking your head. I said, I can't stand it. I'm so proud of this 27-year-old kid who's up there just laying it straight from the text. That's encouraging. Uh, the preaching of the Word is drying up in our world. It's drying up in our country. Praise God for young men like Joel Hayworth that's going to preach the Word of God. Amen. God is good. Well, uh, you ready to go home? We could make it one of those protracted meetings. You remember those when we were kids? We could just reboot and preach again. But thank you for the faithful exposition of the Word of God. Pray for Joel. He's, uh, there's a lot of things he's trying to balance with uh, two babies, pastoring a church at First Salem, and also working on his Ph.D. So he's working toward writing that dissertation. That takes a lot of work. And Nathan's just up the road here at Boulevard Baptist. I don't know if we talked about that, but he leads the music up there. Uh, and youth. He definitely has a full plate, right? <laughs> Leading the music and, and youth. But God bless you for being here today. Um, we'll, just, we'll be one step inside of a new year tomorrow. Uh, let's pray that 2024 
uh, will honor the Lord and bring him glory. Amen. God bless you. Uh, we're going to sing going out. All right, we're done. Let's pray. Great God, thank you for uh, just the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that lift up melody in our hearts to you. Lord, we're reminded in your word to speak to one another with those psalms and hymns. We've done that, Father, to bring you glory today. Thank you for Nathan and Lauren and the babies and family, and thank you for him being willing to come and, and lead. And thank you for Joel and Lindsay. Thank you for the preaching of the word. Uh, may you protect these two men. May they stay contagious, consumed with Jesus. Lord, would you keep the enemy far from them. May they stand uh, on the faith that we've just heard. May they finish well. Uh, Lord, may you uh, confront them with, their tr with your truth themselves. Lord, may you, uh, Lord, embolden them to live faithfully the gospel of Christ in a world uh, that is seeing major difficulties all around the world against our faith. May we live faithfully, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before you leave, one word. Everybody looking at me? The world was not worthy of them. Verse 38. Did y'all see it? The world was not worthy of them. One hundred Christians were massacred in Nigeria yesterday. No, I'm sorry, on Christmas Day, 100 Christians were killed because of their faith by jihadists. The world was not worthy of them. Just remember that. Around this world, people are killed every day for Christ. We don't know what that's like, but I'm telling you, we're getting closer. We're getting closer to knowing what that's like in our country. Pray for Christians in Nigeria. All right? The world's not worthy of them. God bless you.